Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soplick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. This week on Capital Conversations, my ERLC colleague Jason Thacker joins me to discuss his new project, The Digital Public Square. Jason serves as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics at the ERLC. He also serves as an Adjunct Instructor of Philosophy, Ethics, and Worldview at Boyce College in Kentucky. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Following Jesus in the Digital Age with B&H Publishing, as well as The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of Humanity with Sondervan. He also serves as the editor of a forthcoming volume with BNH Academic on Christian ethics and the digital public square focused on content moderation and online governance. He is the project leader and lead drafter of Artificial Intelligence, an evangelical statement of principles, and his work has been featured at Slate, Politico, Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, and World Radio. Jason, welcome to Capital Conversations. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. Thanks for being here. So we are going to dive right in and talk about your new project, which I have had the privilege of hearing um, you talk about for quite a while. And I'm so excited that it is finally launched into the world. So take us back a little bit. How did this project come about? What is the Digital Public Square and how did this project come about? Yeah, in many ways, it's kind of a culmination of a couple of years of effort uh, working in the technology space here at the ERLC, because often when we talk about technology ethics or issues of technology, a lot of people don't always connect that with Christian ethics or issues of religious freedom or issues of human dignity. But as I like to say about my work and our work in technology ethics is that it's it adds another layer to a lot of the main issues that we focus on as an organization. Uh, whether it's from marriage and family or sexuality issues, going to religious freedom, not only domestically, but also internationally, issues of biblical justice, because technology undergirds so much of our entire lives. It's an aspect of everything we do. And so much of our communication today is mediated uh, through these tools, whether it's social media or various communication platforms and technology systems. And so, For us, being able to focus our efforts in this Digital Public Square project is kind of the culmination of a few years, uh, because as you mentioned earlier, we had the privilege of hosting a group to put together a statement of principles on artificial intelligence, which to my knowledge and uh, what I've been told is it's still the first explicitly faith-based statement on artificial intelligence and a lot of the pressing questions. And often when people hear AI, they think it's far off and futuristic. But the reality is is that AI or artificial intelligence or an algorithm is undergirding so much of our economy, our manufacturing, our defense, so much of our communication systems, our banking. It's really everywhere in our society. Yet a lot of Christians haven't really sought to engage and kind of step into a lot of these pressing questions. And so we launched that statement back in April of 2019. 
well, along with my book in 2020 on the age of AI. And from that, I just kind of was engaged in a lot of the conversations, especially the pressing conversations around content moderation and digital governance. Was able to come alongside some various social media companies to provide counsel or to uh, at least give advice and kind of giving a different perspective from a conservative evangelical perspective on a lot of these pressing issues ranging from defining hate speech, the nature of privacy, parental controls and parental rights, and child safety. There's just a host of issues that are really kind of all wrapped up inside of what we call the digital public square. And so as the ERLC saw it a couple years ago, said, what, what's really the next step in our work in technology ethics? And we started kind of coming up with this plan of how do we stand for free expression and religious freedom in the digital age when those two ideas seem to be constantly kind of under assault or under attack? Uh, they're constantly being questioned and pushed. And there was kind of a dearth of resources in this area. There weren't a lot of Christian organizations, especially think tanks or NGOs that were doing a lot of work in these areas, maybe some here or there. It was kind of added onto somebody's portfolio. But for the ERLC, we wanted to make a significant investment, not only in time, resources and personnel, but also in our finances is to say, no, this is something that's really central to life in the digital age or life in this digital public square. Uh, which is this digital gathering place for our society to come together to have these kind of conversations. And so that's really kind of the backstory to the overall project is that we came together wanting to do these things to be able to produce resources for the church and really kind of encapsulate a lot of the work that I've been doing at the ERLC under the banner of this research project. Did you always have a just a natural interest in these issues or was that or was there something over the years that kind of propelled you into that field? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think for me, I guess you could say I'm a little old to say, or a little young, one of the two I can't remember, to say that I grew up with the internet because most people my age didn't. I did because my dad worked for a Fortune 500 tech company when I was a kid. So we had the internet before almost anyone had the internet. Um, I remember when I was writing my first book, I asked my dad about kind of when did we get the internet for the first time? And he said, oh, probably about 1984. And I like gasped. And I was like, the internet wasn't even public then. He's like, oh, yeah, but I was connected into some of the military intranets. Like I was on the internet, but it just wasn't the modern internet. This is because of his work. Um, And so I was always exposed to technology. I knew about these tools. Um, I often knew more about the hardware than the software. And it'll be really clear for listeners, I'm not a technologist by training. But I always had kind of a keen interest in these areas and also knowing the power of these tools, not only to kind of shape our personal lives, but also to shape society. And I didn't become a believer until I was 18 after I understood for the first time the gospel message and the the change that comes with that. I went on into college, went into ministry, felt like I was going to end up planting a church actually uh, there in Washington, D.C. And the Lord had very different plans for me ended up going to seminary and through that was exposed to a lot of ethics and philosophy and theology. But these two, they were two separate worlds still for me until actually coming to the ERLC. I started on staff in kind of the creative communications area, uh, but some opportunities opened up for me to write, to speak on some stuff because I always knew about technology and I knew ethics and theology, but I never really merged the two together and understood how these kind of things speak to one another and interact in society. 
Um, and so it was really kind of, for me, that was the, kind of the starting point. So probably six or seven years ago now, um, starting writing, had some encouragement to keep writing. And the more you write, the more you think, and the more you read, the more you write. And it's just kind of the snowball effect um, that's really come to the day where we have this kind of major research project at the URLC, which is kind of a major asset, kind of major facet of our organization, especially over the next couple of years. Jason, thank you so much for that. That's really interesting. I'm a millennial, which means I did not grow up with the internet. And so it's so interesting that you you did. Um, and it's it's an interesting for my husband and I to think through how we will shepherd our children growing up in the age of the internet and social media and the ability to post their entire lives on social media if we want to, and just some of those questions. But there's a million ways you could take this question, so I will let you take it however you wish. But what are some of the major issues um, in the digital public square that Christians ought to be aware of? Yeah, and that's where, it's, as you said, it's a really complex question because there are a host of issues as interconnected as technology and has, as ubiquitous as, as it is in the digital public square. Uh, technology is everywhere. Um, and so there's so many areas that we can focus on, but kind of the, some of the main areas, especially within this research project that we're wanting to focus on, is those questions surrounding free expression, those questions surrounding religious freedom. Because one of the things that I've noted in my research has been really interesting is that often when you read various, uh, whether it's AI ethics principles or digital governance policies, whether it's here in the States or even abroad, Often when we get into these kind of policies or norms or statements that rarely, if ever, is religious freedom talked about. Often it's covered under diversity and inclusion or equity, but it's rarely explicitly mentioned. So you'll hear issues, uh, whether it's LGBTQ plus rights, diversity, inclusion surrounding ethnicity or race. But you often don't hear religious freedom brought into these conversations. And I think that's unfortunate because all around the world, religion is a major aspect of most people's lives in some respect, uh, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Hindu or what have you, is that religion is a major aspect of most people's lives. And so I think sometimes in the secular West, we often see the segmentation between faith and our public life, we act as if it's just the right to worship in your own home, an internal thing. It's not really a public thing. And so we act as if faith doesn't really have any effect or shouldn't have any effect on our public life. But as Christians, we know that that's just, it's the furthest thing from the truth. Because if we're truly transformed by Christ, not only personally and individually regenerated, it changes everything about how we interact with other people, how we interact and how we think about the role of government, how we think about the role of society. And so our faith informs every aspect of our lives. And so for us, I think some of the big areas that we're wanting to focus in on this research project is what does free expression look like in the digital age? What does religious freedom? Because often religious liberty is seen as a, a, a constitutional right, and it is. But religious freedom is a little bit broader than that because you have to start thinking outside of just a U.S. context. Is What does it look like for a Muslim um, across the world to live out their faith authentically in the public square just as what does it look like for a Christian to do that? Um, and so being able to stand up for the rights of all people to follow their conscience, to follow their beliefs, their deeply held beliefs, and live that out in public is something that's vitally important in the public square, and it always has been. But I think it's even has an interesting kind of turn in the digital public square, 
Because now we're not just thinking in terms of governments or territories or countries. Now we're starting to think about what does religious freedom look like for transnational entities in terms of companies and how they operate not just here in the West, but they operate all around the world under different regimes, under different countries and governments and structures. And there's different values, cultural values even as you get into kind of the international space. And so I think those are some of the really interesting questions. And a lot of those type of questions actually play out in debates over the nature and of hate speech, especially surrounding issues of sexuality. That's where you're, we're starting to see, especially in the United States, a lot of issues surrounding uh, transgender expression online and hate speech policies um, that often protect those who identify as a transgender or various kind of uh, sexual identities is that there's an, a kind of a line drawn that even historic, traditional, mainstream Christian beliefs on marriage and sexuality are now being counted as inherently bigoted and hate speech and are not being allowed online through a lot of these social media policies, these uh, technology company policies. And so I think those are some of the issues where you're starting to see free expression and religious freedom, I think are kind of the bigger buckets, but it plays itself out into uh, marriage and sexuality. It turns into religious freedom. You see this in a lot of questions surrounding digital privacy and what does the nature of privacy and a theological look, I think is helpful for the church to be thinking theologically what is privacy? Do we actually have privacy? And how do we then protect privacy, especially from the overreaching hand of governments, whether it's here in the West or across the world, uh, in terms of a more authoritarian type of regime, uh, where often citizens don't have any semblance of privacy? So what does it mean to stand up for the rights, the, the dignity of those across the world in terms of privacy, in terms of religious freedom, in terms of speech, and living their faith out in the public square, I think are some of the key issues uh, that we're wanting to cover here in the Digital Public Square Project. Jason, thank you so much for that rundown. It was very helpful, especially for me, who's not an expert in these issues. And I'm so grateful that you were thinking through biblically how to approach these incredibly complex and nuanced issues. Um, you did touch on something that I want to dive in a little bit deeper. As you mentioned, the digital public square is not just American, it is global. And one overlap of my work here in Washington, D.C. and your work on these issues is on countering authoritarian regimes, whether it's um, you know, China's persecution of its own citizens, of religious minorities. And we've also seen China's overreach into Hong Kong as well. Can you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and share what's been going on in some of those authoritarian regimes and how they use um, technology to continue to oppress their citizens? Yeah, and this is the reality is that authoritarianism has been prevalent for generations. This is nothing new in that sense. What is new is the ability to control, uh, to control what people can hear, what they can read, what they can, what they're exposed to, uh, the ideas that can shape them. In so many ways, you have countries like China um, who have basically built their entire information technology communication platforms um, in a closed system meaning in many ways they can turn off, they can basically cut off China from the rest of the world in terms of they have their own search engines, they have their own uh, information platforms, they have their own news, they have their own everything. So the Chinese citizens are really 
in many ways, whether it's uh, through the folks in Hong Kong or in mainland China or even the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, is that they're cut off from the ability to have kind of free expression or even just uh, freedom of press to be able to understand and learn about ideas that are contrary to the will of the CCP. But often I think when we talk about this rise of digital authoritarianism is the way I like to talk about it, um, is that there, there's the use of by these governments, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party or even the regimes in Cuba or Iran or Belarus or even in India in many ways, who have outsized control on the public square controlling the flow of information, controlling the type of information that people can receive, and also the ability for citizens to connect with one another. And so in recent years, we've seen kind of internet shutdowns. And I think a lot of people don't totally understand how that's possible in the West because the United States government in many ways doesn't have the ability just to turn off the internet. But if you build your system from the ground up with very intense control mechanisms on how these platforms and networks are built, they in many ways have the keys or a button in some sense that they can turn off the internet. And we've seen this in Belarus uh, with President Lukashenko, who basically shut down the internet in his country to quell protest over a very rigged election. You saw this in Cuba happen just recently in the last few months. We've seen this in Iran over uh, U.S. sanctions, in Iran over the fuel subsidies, and how it basically the government shut down the Internet in order to quell protest, to stop people from communicating with one another. And I think we experience that in a very small and kind of minor and almost trite way in the West when our Internet goes out. You think you don't use the internet every single day or you're not as dependent on it as maybe you, want, you don't want to say it that way. But the internet goes out of your house and you're like, what do I do? I can't work. I can't communicate. I can't call people. And we experienced that in Nashville uh, just last year where uh, the kind of infamous now Nashville RV bomber actually came to downtown Nashville, detonated bomb within the uh, an RV outside of downtown Nashville and shut down the communications network for the Southeast. My family and I, it was Christmas morning of 2020, and we simply did not have access to the internet for about a week. But imagine not having access to the internet or not having access to the fullness of the internet for decades and generations and what that does to a people. In many ways, it's exerting power and control. Um, it's feeding, kind of manipulating through the use of propaganda often. Um, and so digital authoritarianism is nothing new in some sense because governments have always historically used technology to control the flow of information. But now it's to kind of a new level, a new extreme. Not only were they able to shut it off, but they're able to kind of weed out certain types of content. I mean, as listeners on this podcast know, in China, you can't find Tiananmen Square. You Google it and it doesn't come up. Um, well, I say Google it. You don't actually use Google as much in China because they have their own search engines. They have their own platforms. But even you've seen recently um, issues, especially in China with the Chinese Communist Party surrounding Apple and requiring Apple, if they want to do business within China, that the data has to be stored on Chinese-owned servers. And a law that was passed in 2017, a data privacy law that requires the CCP to have access to this data, uh, that at any point the Chinese Communist Party can open up these data troves and use that data as they see fit. And this is, we saw this in recent years um, over the debate over TikTok, 
that's an ex- export from China uh, that's being used in heavily. It's one of the most popular platforms in the United States, um, especially among teenagers. But what, what level does the CCP have in terms of the access to not only their own people's data, but also data from all across the world? This was a lot of the conversations surrounding 5G networks and Huawei and other uh, other types of kind of communication platforms and technologies coming out of China. And so there's just outsized influence uh, from the Chinese Communist Party, in many ways, unaccountable influence, not only able to access these things to control the flow of information, uh, but also in many ways just to have all in the goal of retaining and controlling power and kind of centralizing power, which is really contrary to what a lot of the promises of the internet was, was to decentralize information, to let all people have a voice. You don't see that in a lot of these uh, international regimes, especially in China, but also in uh, Iran, Belarus, and Cuba and other countries around the world. Definitely something for uh, Christians to be uh, keeping an eye on and praying for our brothers and sisters who live in those types of um, authoritarian regimes. And I'm so grateful that you continue to highlight both domestically and internationally um, those issues. So coming back uh, to home a little bit, what are some of the kind of big policies and laws associated with technology Ethics, social media, AI, that entire field, I think, you know, people might or might not be familiar with, you know, Section 230 and those types of things. What are kind of some of the big rocks in that policy field that we should be aware of? Yeah, and especially here in the United States in kind of a more Western context, there are a lot of debates. I mean, a lot of what happens on the Hill has some type of technology component to it, uh, whether it's an explicitly internet-based or social media company kind of law or policy, or especially right now in the Congress, there's um, proposals for a digital privacy law or even conversations surrounding the infrastructure bill and the broadband subsidies that are being added to that, which is pretty incredible in the sense of the amount of money that is being dedicated within the spending bill um, in order to fund broadband access nationwide. Because uh, some listeners very well know that when you get outside of certain areas within the United States, especially where my in-laws live outside of Kentucky, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, they don't have access to broadband. We kind of take it for advantage and we take advantage of that and don't really think about that a lot of people around even within 20 or 30 miles of us may or may not have access to broadband, especially with the pandemic and kind of shift to remote work for certain types of jobs. Not all people were remote or even able to be remote is that there's an inability to connect. I mean, I can't actually do a video call or a podcast or an interview or anything at my in-laws house uh, because of the lack of access to broadband. And so you see these debates happen in the halls of Congress and in think tanks and NGOs throughout D.C. of what types of, well, you know, what's the role of the government, of our government in terms of digital infrastructure, in terms of content moderation, in terms of digital governance? Um, You see a lot of questions surrounding kind of 230, which is often kind of a buzzword within technology circles, um, because Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in 1996 basically keeps our shields and platforms from being liable for the content that's posted by third parties in the hopes of them having good faith content moderation. 
But especially in recent years, we've had a lot of debate over the nature of content moderation and who should write those rules and who are they accountable to or who are these companies accountable to when they write those. So in even recent months, the your listeners probably are familiar with the Florida social media bill or the Texas social media bill. A lot of states are taking it upon themselves to write certain regulations in terms of governance or content moderation. And that's often because we're not seeing that at the federal level, but there's also kind of some philosophical beliefs of should the government actually be doing that? So there's even debates within conservative circles and especially within the Christian church over the proper role of government. What is the proper role of government? What's the proper role of these companies, especially that have outsized influence over the digital public square? Uh, What rules should be in place? What kind of responsibilities do these companies have to make sure that there is free speech, to make sure that there is diversity, to make sure that there is a platform for religious freedom? As these companies often now have outsized influence over the type of information we're exposed to, the ways that we communicate with one another. And so there's a lot of live debates Um, across the ideological perspective, even within the conservative community of what's the proper role of government? What's the proper role of these companies? How should they be accountable? What role does individual citizens do we play in this? And even from our perspective is what role does Christian ethics play in a lot of these conversations? And how should Christians be thinking about the digital public square? And that's what we really hope to do as part of this overall research project is to not only equip the church to navigate a lot of these complex and nuanced questions, because there are not a lot of cut and dry answers here. There's not like the Bible, and I I joke about this sometimes, but Jesus didn't tell us what to think about 230. Jesus didn't write a lot. You know, he didn't talk a lot about artificial intelligence or Facebook or social media, nor did Paul or Peter or James or anybody. So when we think about this, then how do we approach this from a biblical ethical perspective Often, this is applying principles of human dignity, applying principles of religious freedom, and applying principles of kind of a a robust dialogue that happens within the public square with the proper size and role of government, um, but also having these companies to be responsible and to be thinking through and engaging with people of faith so that we round and have better policies. The goal here is not just to shut down debate as much as let's have better policies, let's have conversations. I think this is a prime time for people of faith. Um, And one of the reasons we're doing this here at the RLC is to step in and have these conversations, not only to produce resources to equip the church, but also to equip those in the technology industry who have very difficult jobs. I think often people think in terms of content moderation that there's just people behind the scenes just pulling triggers and kind of laughing about this and having a good old time because they love shutting down conversation. That can be in many ways furthest from the truth. Content moderation is hard. It's discouraging. In many ways, there's kind of psychological traumas that happen because what we see on the internet and may be offended by, there are countless things that are automatically taken down whether it's child pornography, abuse, slurs, bigoted language, hate speech. I mean, just it's it's a very disturbing place, especially in terms of content moderation. But that doesn't mean that all content moderation is good. Sometimes we have to think about the proper role 
of these companies and the government. And so overall, is the goal of the project is to not only equip the local church to be thinking about these issues, uh, but also to be equipping companies to be thinking through this, especially in kind of representing people of faith when they're having these really uh, important conversations that in many ways shape the dialogue that we have within the digital public square. So Jason, as we are wrapping up um, what has been just an extraordinarily helpful episode, we will definitely have you back for part two. We just scratched the surface. We could, uh, there's a lot more we could talk about. For our listeners who want to dive deeper and um, learn more about these issues and engage more intelligently with their neighbors, whether they're neighbors in physical proximity or their neighbors in the digital public square, how can they learn more about this project and stay up to date with your work? Yeah, the easiest way to stay up to date, especially with the research project and our work in tech ethics, is to go to erlc.com digital. This is the landing page for the research project. This is where a lot of our resources are, especially our weekly articles on a lot of the kind of pressing issues within the digital public square. Um, so even in recent weeks, we've talked about Google ad bans on pro-life material. We've talked about hate speech, defining the line, also thinking about religious freedom in a digital age. We've talked about COVID disinformation and misinformation, how to think about the role of government in that. And so there's a host of not only resources there, but also more information about the project itself. And then you can sign up to receive updates. So at the very bottom of that page is an email slot. I drop your email and your first and last name in there. And what that does is it signs you up for the weekly tech email, uh, this newsletter that we send out each Monday morning that highlights our work in the digital public square, as well as our podcast, uh, which we just recently relaunched the weekly tech podcast as the digital public square podcast, aligning it with the research project. But in that podcast that I host every, every week, it comes out on Mondays, I seek to engage some of the most kind of prescient thinkers um, and leaders in our society to talk about ethics, to talk about philosophy, to talk about technology and theology in kind of our technological society. And so it's not just tech-focused, uh, which is kind of the old, the old name, Weekly Tech, kind of insinuated it was all about technology or tech reviews or something like that. No, we're wanting to host conversations about the nature of public theology, the nature of ethics. What does this look like in the public square? But doing so within kind of this new digital environment that we're in. Um, and so you can, that's available on Apple Podcasts, my website, jasonthacker.com slash podcast. You can also learn more at jasonthacker.com or you can check out the articles on erlc.com slash digital. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today on Capital Conversations. And I truly would um, encourage our listeners to go subscribe to your podcast and go um, learn more about this project because it. I can just speak from a personal standpoint. It's been extremely helpful to think more carefully and critically about these issues. I hear a lot of sound bites in the news and I, I want to think well about these issues. And I, I appreciate you helping us think apply biblical principles to these issues. So I just, I want you to know I'm grateful for your work and encourage our listeners to go, go check you out too. Well, I appreciate that. That's humbling. And I appreciate those kind words. And it's just a joy to be able to serve alongside you here at the RLC, um, because it's really what our goal is, is to do is what does Christian ethics look like in the public square, um, especially surrounding free expression, and uh, religious freedom. And so I just, it's, it's a joy to work with you and to be here on the podcast. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. 
Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at erlc.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and the ERLC podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time.